Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 187, Dr. Paul W. Newman's Spirit Christology, Part 1. Since 1961, Dr. Paul W. Newman has been an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada. He holds a B.A. in Philosophy and English and a B.D. from the University of Toronto, and he earned his Ph.D. in Theology from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has served as a minister, as head of the Divinity School in the Chinese University of Hong Kong, a professor of Systematic Theology in St. Andrews College in the University of Saskatchewan, as National Secretary for Interfaith Dialogue with the United Church of Canada, and finally as Minister in Kamloops United Church. He's now retired in Souk, British Columbia, Canada. He's here with us today to talk about his book called A Spirit Christology, Recovering the Biblical Paradigm of Christian Faith. Dr. Newman, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to this. What's more fun than talking about Christology? I agree completely. Dr. Newman, so many people today are supremely confident that Christian theology and Christology are just, by definition, Trinitarian, and your book diverges from this. What started you thinking that something was amiss in this popular assumption? There seems to be a wide consensus now, among the theologians at least, that uh, you have to speak about Jesus as a human being, and I think that that's true for a lot of people as well that they can't conceive of Jesus not being fully human. And the problem with, being, with, with saying that he's fully human is that it leaves the question, well, how can a fully human being be part of a triune God? How can it be God at the same time? The ancient doctrines of the church really focused on his deity, not on his humanity. But now we have to think about his humanity. That's why I wanted to study Jesus as a human being, and also to be true to the scriptures, because I don't think the scriptures portray him as God. Some will say that traditional Christology has a tendency towards docetism, but I think right. you're saying something stronger than that, aren't you? Yes, I am, because the Trinitarian idea of Jesus as God implies that he had some kind of a pre-existence before the man Jesus of Nazareth was born. And you can't really have a human being pre-existent like that in a divine way and still call him a human being. And I think the scholars are pretty firmly united in the idea that the concern for Jesus being deity outweighed the need to re realize that he was a human being. In the controversies of the 4th uh, century and the 5th century, there was a big conflict about this. The part of the church wanted Jesus to be fully recognized as a human being, and the other side really wanted him to be recognized as fully divine for salvation reasons, and uh, the salvation people won. <laughs> they uh, prevailed, and they were able to declare that the other side were really deficient in their faith and their understanding of Jesus and of God, and so they, they, they were condemned. And uh, the church accepted the idea that Jesus was really God 
and they put it into the creeds and so on, and it became a standard belief for Christians. But it was a mistake, I think. It's not biblical, and I think it, it has a whole lot of other disadvantages, theologically. Yeah, there is an interesting kind of consensus. One thing I thought was really interesting about your book was you were interacting constantly with a lot of theologians and textual scholars, particularly from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a lot of people that I hadn't read. And a lot of them were saying, even Roman Catholic ones were saying similar things, like, has the tradition, in fact, left behind the man Jesus? And so people were searching around for different ideas and starting to rethink it, although it seems to me there's been a strong pushback against it maybe since the late 70s. Can we drill down a little bit more into this, Dr. Newman? So Sure. So they became very interested in this pre-existent or even eternal logos, this eternal son. And then some of them, like Athanasius, for instance, seem to think that what looked like the man Jesus was the logos with a body. So why wouldn't that be good enough in your view? Because his essential identity was still divine, was still deity. And the attempts to explain him as a human being were secondary. And it was all based on their understanding of why Jesus had to be called divine. And this was for soteriological reasons. They had to have a divine Jesus, as Basil said, for example. He had to be fully divine in order to pay for the sins of the whole world in his death. And Athanasius had a different understanding, too, about Jesus had to be fully divine in order to allow us to become divine. Mm -hmm. if, if he wasn't fully divine, we didn't have the possibility of becoming sufficiently divine, too. And so the emphasis was really on how important it was for him to be divine. That whole understanding of salvation, it seemed to me, was a mistake. And has it's been a mistake that's lumbered the church ever since. So what's wrong with this idea that to be saved is to be divinized by the divine logos? And what's wrong with the idea that only a divine being could pay the price? Well, starting with the second one first, it depends on a theory of scapegoating. That somehow or other... God is satisfied by the alternative, a substitute sacrifice. The merit of that would be accredited to everybody else who hasn't got enough merit to deserve the forgiveness of their sins. But that, that whole idea isn't true to Jesus, I think, you see. Jesus, according to Matthew, a couple of times says, go and learn what it says I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This whole idea of Jesus as a scapegoat is not strong, if it's there at all, in the New Testament accounts about Jesus. And uh, now in the modern world, people are losing confidence in the idea of scapegoating. There's a French anthropologist, René Girard, who's an expert on scapegoating, and he maintains that modern people are no longer believing in scapegoating the way they have in the past. And as a result, the churches are shrinking and they're going to disappear because people won't believe in it anymore. And that's a tremendous tragedy for the world because the world needs more Jesus, not less Jesus. And uh, Gerard himself says that the influence of Jesus on history has been tremendous, that there's been a lot of people who aren't very strong Christians who are still convinced that Jesus' way of 
thinking and way of being was was right and that there has been a more compassion he says in the modern world than there ever was before and he attributes this to a kind of a process of christianization it doesn't have to do with the church necessarily it just has to do with people who are accepting the spirit of jesus as an authentic expression of human beings it's a kind of humanitarian values it is except that uh, the church has always said it's not just humanitarian it's divine in the sense that the holy spirit is what accounts for mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of secular people also believe uh, in the spirit so that's another reason why i was interested in a spirit christology because spirit is a language now that a lot of people can speak not just christians and it's a language that can still be spoken in a scientific world where a lot of the ideas of God are very difficult to talk about, like a theistic God who sits up there and somehow intervenes in the processes of the world and in intentional ways and uh, causes his will to be done no matter what. Do you mean an anthropomorphic God? or uh, how do Yeah, it's you mean... a kind of an anthropomorphic God. Mm -hmm. Before we leave the topic of atonement, Dr. Newman, could you say a little bit more about scapegoating? You said that people don't like the idea of scapegoating now. Do you have in mind, like, penal substitution atonement, or that God's wrath has to be satisfied? Or say a little bit more about how you're thinking about scapegoating there. Well, you're pointing in the right direction, That uh, I think, that uh, people find it hard to believe that God, a merciful, good-intentioned God, would ever be satisfied by a substitute sacrifice, which is a cultic sacrifice, not an ethical sacrifice. It's not primarily ethical anyway. It's, a, it's, it's, it's primarily a cultic event. People just simply say, oh, I don't believe that at all. You know, I don't think there's any kind of a god up there or out there who would accept that kind of a bargain. It just doesn't ring true. Right. I'll forgive you, but only if I get to kill this innocent person. Well, that's right. That's ethically strange. I agree. What about this idea, though, that is so popular, at least with a lot of evangelical Protestants, that God would be unjust if he forgave apart from somebody actually getting the penalty or the wrath? Well, that depends on a, on a particular kind of idea of justice, retributive justice. But in the stories of Jesus and in the way he acted towards people, he didn't uh, stress retribution as being one of the foundations of uh, God. His portrayal of God was much more of a merciful God who, uh, like the father of the prodigal son, accepts the son home. The son has made a return and has indicated that he's uh, sorry, <laughs> he repents, but he doesn't have to pay for it. Mm. But the father of the prodigal son rushes out to meet him and accepts him. And the older brother thought maybe he should have paid for it or paid something. But uh, the, the father simply says, what's really just is when the lost is found and, and uh, those who are go gone come back. And uh, this seems to me to be true, you see, to the prevailing Hebrew understanding of atonement as return. And many, many times in the Old Testament it speaks about God calling for people to return to God and to keep the laws of the covenant, and then they will be forgiven. They'll be forgiven even before they keep the laws. But they come back, and the name of the game is keeping the laws of the covenant. 
And I think Jesus, several stories about Jesus bear out that he said he had the same idea. He wasn't changing his understanding of atonement from the ancient Hebrew way. It's the church changed it afterwards. <laughs> so your view is that Jesus's teaching about divine forgiveness clashes with some of these traditions about atonement theory. Is your view that Jesus teaches that repentance and then maybe divine grace that leads to repentance, that's all that's required? That's the way to reunion with God and salvation in the sense of salvation being health and well-being and, uh, and good for the world, too. Like another problem with salvation in the traditional Christian view is it focuses primarily, first of all, on individual salvation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problems in the world today that are catching people's attention, quite rightly, are not just individual problems. There are a lot of individual problems, of course, but there are systemic problems. The problems of starvation are not just individual. The problems of violence are not just individual, although there's a lot of individual violence, too. But if the world is going to be saved, there has to be a different way and a different idea of it And uh, the traditional Christian idea of confessing your sins so that you will go to heaven is not very helpful for the salvation of the world. It's not totally useless because people who are forgiven and live out of gratitude, they become good people, possibly, and possibly not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the way of Jesus was seemed, in the stories we have about him, he seemed to confront systemic problems, as well as individual issues. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Newman about reactions to this book. Dr. Newman, the first edition of this book was published in 1987. What generally have been people's different reactions to it? How would you characterize the responses? Well, it was published, uh, first of all, in University Press of America because I couldn't find a Christian church publisher that would publish it because it was heretical, Mm. calling for a change in the basic paradigm of Christian faith. Mm Mm-hmm. But it sold out from University Press of America, and it had got some some decent reviews. It got some uh, reviews in Canada and in the States and in Britain and in Africa. Mostly they were positive, but cautious, and sometimes the reviews uh, would challenge me on this idea that Jesus was fully human and not God. But... On the whole, it was it was a pretty positive response, except I, I noticed one time on, on the Internet that there was a list of books called Books from Hell, <laughs> and my book was you on it. You want to be on that list. <laughs> I don't know who put the list out or where it came from, but uh, wow. it was a bit of a shock. That's worse than getting one star on Amazon. But I've had a lot of individual people write and say things like, you saved my Christian identity. I was able, after reading your book, 
to fully be, be fully confident that I was an acceptable Christian. I mean, I didn't accept the standard doctrines that normally define a Christian, but I, I, I believe that the, the way you presented Jesus, the way Jesus came out of this great conversation I was having with, with all these other theologians and biblical scholars, that that way of looking at Jesus was authentic and acceptable and uh, they didn't feel as if they were outside Christian tradition looking in. They, they felt they were embracing it even more fully and uh, faithfully than they ever had before. Hmm. Now that was very gratifying to me personally because that, that seemed to me to be the strength of the scriptural testimony and the strength of the conversation amongst the contemporary scholars at the time. This was coming through to people and was being uh, authenticated in their experience. Basically, I didn't have any threats to be ca cast out of the church. Because uh -huh. the, the United Church has a wide tent for people, as you probably know. But the book wasn't of much interest to a lot of people who couldn't imagine challenging the creeds of the church and the accepted uh, Trinitarian paradigm. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to say in this book that the church didn't start off with this paradigm. It started off with uh, what I call the relational paradigm, that Jesus' identity was a result of his relationship with God in the Spirit. There's lots of testimony to that in the New Testament. This is a different, different way of looking at Jesus than trying to define him ontologically as divine. You know, the classic complaint about that is that it was anhypostatic. There was no human hypostasis for Jesus, just a divine one. He, basically, his identity was divine after the church councils fixed that idea. Yeah, they say he was man, but not a man. <laughs> oh, boy, that's, that's a tricky argument. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Dr. Newman, would it be fair to describe you as uh, politically liberal and theologically mainline? Well, I think it would be true to say I'm politically liberal in the sense that I really care about equality or, and, that, uh, and social justice and uh, the poor. I mean, how can you follow Jesus and not care about the poor? Mm. And uh, poverty is a terrific problem in a society, in every society, including, but in the world it's a terrible problem. It's killing children by the millions all the time and a whole lot of other people. And there's, and there's no need for it. If the human beings were more socially compassionate, if there was a kinder, gentler society, you wouldn't have so many problems. You wouldn't have so many deaths and so much pain and, and anguish because of, just due to poverty alone. But poverty breeds all other kinds of problems like violence. And uh, I mean, it's a complex social issue. But uh, yes, I'm liberal <laughs> in that sense. I suppose a lot of Americans would call me a socialist. But uh, I'm not a doctrinaire socialist. How about theologically mainline? Is that, would you say that's an accurate description? Probably not. See, I think the theological mainline is still doggedly committed to somehow or other accommodating the affirmations of the, the fathers of the church. And I, I think, you see, uh, we need to go back beyond that to the first couple of centuries when the church was much more balanced about the humanity of Jesus. Interesting, yeah. Some, some people call this type of theology restorationist. 
I like that term. That would suit me fine. <laughs> the reason I was asking about those labels is I was curious if North American evangelicals have engaged with your work or whether they've kind of ignored it because it's outside of that camp. Well, it's been ignored, I would say. It's been ignored by a lot of people, but then some people have really liked it. I was amazed. I, for years, I, I sort of gave up on it and didn't pay much attention. And then I looked in Amazon one time four years ago, and holy smoke, they were selling the second-hand copies of my book for astronomical prices. Uh-huh. <laughs> Somebody out there likes it, I said, so I better try and make it available. I've shared the book around personally with friends and other people, and well, just last week I, I go, gave it to a retired minister here in Victoria. His response was, I think that's the original understanding of Jesus that we should have. So I'm hoping that it, that it will catch on. I think the time is, is ripening all the time when people are going to have to come to grips with the humanity of Jesus. And Jesus as a human being full of the Holy Spirit, as Luke calls him, is a right and reasonable way to think about Jesus. And it's got a whole lot of benefits to talk about Jesus that way because you can have a conversation with the Muslims. The Muslims would be able to talk about the Spirit in Muhammad. A lot of them would affirm that Muhammad was a peace-loving man who tried to stick with his compassion as far as it would go before he was forced into uh, conflict. I mean, I'm not a Muslim scholar, but I've, I've read enough to know that, that, that that's the way a lot of Muslims would want to talk about Muhammad. And uh, Buddha was a man full of compassion too, of course. I don't know whether the Buddhists would want to speak about spirit much, but I think if they were going to talk at all about the creative realities that be larger than human beings, they might like to talk about spirit. <laughs> Even uh, secularists talk about spirit. You know, like uh, D.H. Lawrence, for example, was a very secular writer, but he, he attributed the uh, creative merit of his own writings to the wind that blew through him. And... Uh, the wind is the ruach, you know, or the spirit of God uh, that's also the breath of human beings. And everybody has breath. And the wind blows all over where it wills, and nobody knows where it comes from and where it goes. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a reality of the creator present everywhere and involved with everybody. And, uh, of course, we're all ambiguous about it. We're all fragmentarily full of the spirit for full at all. And most of us aren't, you know, but we, we have the Spirit in us, and there's very few people that don't have some compassion. The world needs to talk about this and to join forces in the name of Spirit and solve some of the problems. <laughs> Maybe an oversimplified view, but that's the way I look at it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Newman about his view of the uniqueness of Jesus. When you mentioned Jesus and uh, Muhammad and Buddha in close conjunction, 
A lot of Christians will immediately be concerned that uh, you're not giving Jesus enough priority or uniqueness. How would you answer that type of concern? I would say that Jesus had a vocation that was unique in our, in our Christian view. As the Messiah, he was the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as it says in, in uh, Hebrews. And that uh, if you encounter Jesus and you love him, you care passionately about him, you are committed to him as the last word on the subject, in a sense, you see. He is the authoritative, ultimate expression of what full of the Holy Spirit means in human life. He calls people to love him and to, if they love him, feed his lambs and sheep. You know, as he says to Peter, there's a uniqueness about Jesus that uh, accounts for the existence of the church. And uh, I certainly don't think that uniqueness is displaced by recognizing the uniqueness of others as well. I think everybody in the creation has a vocation that is intended by the Creator, but the Jesus vocation is the one that calls people to follow him, to learn of him, to walk in his way, and to, uh, to proclaim that his way of compassion is the right way. It doesn't have to say that everybody else's understanding of compassion is deficient or wrong or anything else. It's, it simply says, as far as we know, this is the one we want to follow. So I don't, I don't think we're sitting on the fence looking at everybody equally. We're, we're, Christians have uh, a commitment to the ultimacy of uh, Jesus' manifestation of God. So what makes him unique is his, his uh, unique vocation, his divine calling as Messiah? That's right. Which nobody else has? We, we would say that. And we, we trust that that's true, and we hope that eventually history will prove it to be true, but that's a long way from now. And so our affirmation of Jesus' ultimacy is proleptic in the sense that we say, as far as we can see, that's the way things are. And uh, we might be wrong, but we're going to live and act and trust and teach and work on this basis that he's the one for us to follow. I think personally that Jesus and Buddha probably would have been good friends if they've ever met. <laughs> and I think uh, it's unfortunate that Muhammad didn't know more about Jesus, even though he probably accepts him as a saint. But comparative religion is a big subject, but we have to start off with respect for each other. And the, the spirit in everybody gives us a basis, a necessity to respect other people. Dr. Newman, one concern that you have throughout the book is that you don't think we should limit God's activity to just the Christian church. Why, in your view, is that important? Well, because God so loved the whole world, and the Spirit blows where it wills, and uh, we see the Spirit working in the ancient Hebrews. We see it working all over the place, you know, all over the place. It would be simply wrong to uh, discount the reality of the Spirit that it gives compassion and justice and truth and respect to people all over the world. And it would simply be wrong. It's just like trying to say nobody else has blood except us. That would be stupid. And I think it's equally stupid to say the same thing about religion, that we're the only ones who have it. That kind of ethnocentrism is just simply wrong, and especially so in a global village 
as people call the world now. And do you connect that with the topic of natural revelation, that there's information about God available to all the human race? I've never focused much on the word natural revelation, but I would say that I'm sure that God, the Spirit, is moving everywhere and in every human being. We're ambiguous and fragmentary in the way that we understand it and accept it and manifest it, but it's, it's active nonetheless. It's, it's just as active as the wind, it's just as active as breath, and it's as universal. And I think that's biblical, you see. <laughs> just even the word that the, the Hebrews used for spirits, using the metaphor of wind and breath, ruach, the image there of spirit is universal. As, as, as universal as the wind or as breath. I think Jesus manifested that too. I don't think Jesus was teaching systematic theology in most of his teachings, but he was living it out. And uh, in his first sermon, for example, when he went to uh, Nazareth, he was an example of God's mercy for this, the woman of Sidon, the widow of Sidon. And Sidon, one of the enemies of Israel, Jesus came to an understanding of God's compassion and activity outside the bounds of Hebrew culture. It nearly cost him his life on that occasion because the ethnocentric uh, feelings of the people didn't like him talking about God active with their enemies. But Jesus talked about it anyway. And uh, he had to escape the village by, by some means. This, in your view, like an aspect of human evil that we just want to think that we have monopoly on salvation and just, you know, why would God even bother with these other people? Well, certainly I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's an aspect of our evil. It's, it's a very evil trait. It may be that nationalism has a place, or had, had a place anyway, in the well-being of the world. But it's becoming less and less important and, and because as the world shrinks all the time, patriotism can become the worst sin because it's divisive and it's uh, discounting of the importance and the justice that is due to others outside of our nation. As the world gets shrinks, so to speak, the more important it is that we become international, that we become human beings first and Canadians second, you know, or third or fourth. But uh, we have to be human beings first, because that's the way the creation works. I mean, in the total scheme of things, to, to put patriotism as number one in your value system is a distorted view of the way things are. Yeah, well, that doesn't seem like it could be an option for Christians. Well, a lot of Christians are. <laughs> when the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Newman if he holds that one religion is as good as any other.
So, Dr. Newman, you view God as active in the whole world, in a sense, available to all people, at least the workings of God as spirit are everywhere. Does this require that you take the pluralistic view that the major religions are more or less equally valid or equally effective ways for human beings to relate to God? No, I would say it doesn't because I have a primary commitment to Jesus. I I can't help that. I just uh, feel that way, and I'm willing to wait and see if it's right. It won't happen in my lifetime, but proleptically, I, I would affirm, you see, that he is the way and the truth and the life. And uh, that this is the way that human beings are to live in peace and justice and harmony. I think that the church has missed the boat on that because they haven't emphasized the peacemaking enough. They've often used the church as a propaganda instrument to bolster fighting forces. I think that's so strange from Jesus. I just wrote an article that's going to come out in the... uh, Journal of Ecumenical Studies uh, as a discussion article about the sacrament of non-lethal love. I think that Jesus, in the Last Supper, he holds the wine up and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. I don't think he was talking about a cultic covenantal ceremony of atonement. I think he was talking about, this is my blood of the covenant law of love and that he had to drink that cup, and that uh, if the sacrament of Holy Communion were a sacrament of mercy, or a a sacrament of non-lethal love, and it were practiced by Christians all over the world, it would be a tremendous force for peace. It's like tilting the windmill to try to suggest that change in in history here. (laughs) I mean, the way communions are done. But... I still think it's right. I still think that's what it meant, that uh, Jesus' death was was an ethical sacrifice, not a cultic sacrifice. He was acting out of compassion for his enemies, even though the cost was horrendous and the the temptations were terrible, stressful, and uh, so on. But he stuck with it. And his way of the cross is the way of peace. I think it's about five or six times in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says, if you would be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. I mean, uh, what does he mean by that? He's not talking about another scapegoating event. He's talking about the way of the cross as a way of life. Service even to the point of death. Yes. I mean, that's a tremendous challenge for human beings. But I think it's, well, as... Rene Girard says, Jesus' death was a breakthrough in human history that it may be, in fact, the only hope for the survival of the world. (laughs) That the influence of that ethical sacrifice may be the key to the salvation of the world. I mean, he's not a theologian much. and I I don't like a lot of his theology because he does get back into Trinitarianism, I think. But uh, but I think he's right that that Jesus' death was not a scapegoating event. Jesus doesn't talk about it that way. You emphasize in your book that it was an act of humble and faithful obedience to God. That's right. His going to his death. Uh, You emphasize that it was completely willing and in that sense is partly an example. But you don't think it's only an example of those things? No, uh, because 
if one partakes of it and, in a sense, drinks his blood and eats his body, which is a very bad metaphors in some ways, <laughs> if one does that, one internalizes the reality of the Spirit of Jesus. It's a gift to the church and to any who come to the table, whether they're church or not. If they enter into that reality, affirming it intentionally and committing themselves to it, it's the way of peace. It's blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I mean, this is this is the way for peace and justice in the world. To connect with my question about pluralism, so you don't take the view that just let a thousand flowers bloom, for all we know, all the major religions are equally good. You know, a view like John Hick used to take, uh, although his view is kind of that they're all equally false, not that they're all equally true. <laughs> But so that's not your view. You do think that the church then has a mandate to spread its message, although not by force, but by service and, I guess, persuasion and love. That's absolutely right. That's exactly right. But it seems clear to me, although I don't think you say it outright, but it seems clear to me that you think that people outside Christianity can be reconciled to God. So would you be an inclusivist about salvation? Like that God can accept people who have different religious traditions, although, however, this is the best deal. This is sort of the most complete game in town, which is destined to uh, prevail everywhere. Is that your type of view, what, like a Rahner-type inclusivism? It sounds pretty much like me. I'm a little bit wary about uh, deciding how God judges, because it's with what judgment we judge, we shall be judged. But uh, it's one of the wisdom sayings of Jesus. But I think, you see, we're all ambiguous. You know, as Shakespeare said in Merchant of Venice, we all pray for mercy. And this same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. In other words, we're all in the same boat, no matter what our religion is, of of praying for mercy in the sense that uh, we've been ambiguous in, in our existence we haven't done everything we could. We've done things wrong. We all need to repent. God calls everybody to repent and, and, and provides the spirit to move it and make it happen. And uh, so it's not works righteousness. It's a matter of, of hearing the spirit and, and repenting. I'm not called to judge who does it right and, and how they hold their mouth or anything like that. Somebody said, God didn't call me to the judgment seat. God called me to the witness stand. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I like that metaphor a lot better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of that passage where Jesus is in an argument with some of the, his Jewish opponents. And uh, they say, you know, don't tell us anything. We're children of Abraham. And he kind of scoffs at this. Well, God can turn these stones into children of Abraham. You know, don't think you're so special. Don't you think it's a temptation for Christians to say, well, look, I'm a Christian. I don't want to hear anything from anybody who's not because I'm a Christian and they're not. So what could you possibly tell me? Well, that that attitude is totally wrong, of course. Yeah, it seems dangerous. Oh, it sells the spirit short. Like, uh, who knows what the spirit is doing and where it's blowing. What we want to do is try to catch the breath of it and catch the wind and see where it's going and be moved by it in the right direction. Well, these metaphors are limited, but I really like that metaphor, (laughs) as you can tell. 
Dr. Newman, thanks for talking with us. Well, thank you for listening. It's, it's confusing, but thanks anyway. <laughs> Next week, more of my conversation with Dr. Paul W. Newman about his book, A Spirit Christology, Recovering the Biblical Paradigm of Christian Faith. In the next part, we'll really get into his Christology, specifically how he thinks this idea of God's spirit is the key to a true New Testament understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Today's thinking music has been... A Dark Blue Arc by Pipe Choir. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that whole track. Before we go, I just wanted to let you know that my book has been released as an ebook, a paperback, and soon as an audiobook as well. It's called What is the Trinity? Thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll talk more about it on a future podcast. But if you want to check it out, there's a link at the bottom of the blog post for this episode. I know that some of you faithful podcast listeners have already read the book. I would really appreciate it if you would give the book a rating and review at Amazon or wherever else you purchase the book. We'll see you next week. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>